The following Noble Path talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members over Zoom during monthly online meetings for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Hojin, for that lovely introduction. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Oliver. Um, and like Hojin said, I am the caretaker at the Fire Lotus Temple. Um, and uh, thank you all for taking the time to listen to my talk today. All right. So my path to the Dharma was, like most people's, full of surprises and heavily influenced by my past. As I was writing this, I realized that my religious upbringing and my queerness are inextricably linked. And in order to fully explain my path to the Dharma, there are some things that I need to explain first. I was raised very, very, very Roman Catholic. My faith was very dear to me growing up. Um, I took all the sacraments. I had a promise ring. I went to Catholic middle school. And by the time I was 14, I had read the Bible back to front. By the time I was 16, however, I had fully embraced the fact that I was bisexual to the detriment of my spirituality. I, and I ended up losing my faith in a, in the, a God who couldn't love his gay children. This was a slippery slope to me falling fully out of Catholicism, Christianity, and organized religion as a whole. And to this day, I still feel uncomfortable stepping inside a church. Going to a Catholic school uh, and coinciding with losing my faith led to a decline in my mental health in my mid to late teens that lasted well into my adult years. Years before, my parents had en enrolled me in a dojo that taught Taekwondo. From ages eight to 16, I worked hard, developed my inner and outer strength, and learned the value of discipline. This was also my first introduc introduction to meditation. As my men mental health began to take a turn for the worse, my parents encouraged me to take a more active role in the dojo, and I became an assistant, helping to teach the classes, working with the younger students, and taking on my first real set of responsibilities. Eventually, though, the inner politics and constantly changing programming of the dojo led me to stop attending. I very much felt the loss of what had been a safe haven for me, and I've never quite found anything like it since. When I was 19, I encountered for the first time words such as gender dysphoria, transgender, and non-binary, and I felt the metaphorical light bulb going off above my head. Oh! This explained why I had felt so out of place all of my life, why I had always felt like a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. As I entered treatment with a therapist who specialized in gender identity, I began to see how my untreated gender dysphoria had permeated even the simplest, simplest aspects of my daily life. I began to deeply examine how this trauma had affected everything, from my memories of my childhood to how I saw myself to how I interacted with those around me and even how I had lost my faith. Everything came back to the fact that I was unavoidably, undeniably transgender. At 21 years old, just before my senior year of college, I came out to my friends and family in a Facebook post on August 16th, 2014. To my surprise, I received an outpouring of nothing but love. Not to toot my own horn, but I look back on it now and I am completely shocked 
by the courage it took to tell the truth in such a public, vulnerable way. To nearly all my friends and family, I was the first non-binary or trans person in their lives. I had no non-binary role models, no elders, nobody to ask for advice or support. But despite the trials that my transparency has brought on, I have not regretted coming out for a single moment. Living as my true self, my mental health was better than ever. I spent that last year of school in a bubble of support from my very liberal theater department. I graduated full of optimistic hope, ready to take on the world and be my open, vibrant, non-binary self. Once I got out in the real world, however, I was in for a rude awakening. Being a student was hard, but being a transgender adult moving through the world post-college was a whole other ballgame. After a few years of receiving the treatment that the world gives to trans people, I had thrown out that optimistic shine of youth in favor of cynicism and thick walls up around my heart, and my mental health again took a turn for the worse. My father began sharing books on self-help and, more importantly, on Buddhism with me. I tried reading one or two, but they didn't resonate yet. In late 2017, at a transgender wellness conference in Philadelphia, I met who would be my partner for the next year and a half. All of a sudden, I was thrown into a world of transgender activism and full acceptance of who I was. He was my first love and the first partner I'd ever had to encourage me to be the best version of myself. When he got into meditation, he tried to bring me into it. We tried meditating together all of one time, and it was absolutely miserable for me. I couldn't figure out how to clear my mind, and for 20 minutes I sat there berating myself for not being a better at meditation for my partner. Even the best relationships has its struggles, and mine was no exception. My partner had idealistic expectations for me, and as I failed to meet them, I started having a hard time. I began to ask myself some tough questions. Why am I so miserable all the time? Why can't anything seem to make me truly happy? Who even am I? An idea started to float around in the back of my mind, barely formed. Could these Buddhist books that my dad had shared possibly have something that could help me? The relationship slowly became toxic and eventually it fell apart. Losing my relationship was rock bottom. The evening it happened, I sat in my parents' living room and began looking up Buddhist monasteries. I discovered that there were monasteries in the United States so I wouldn't have to run away to Tibet, which was a relief. I came across several monasteries websites, but one in particular stood out. The website was easy to read and the part that attracted me most was an inclusion statement, specifically saying that trans and gender non-conforming people were welcome there. And they had residency opportunities. Within the week, I had my residency interview and I was set to stay for the month of April. The person who had conducted my residency interview, who went by the interesting name of Shoan, had warned me that it was not going to be easy. I had minimal meditation experience, no Buddhist practice as of yet, and I was coming in the second month of Ango. All of this meant nothing to me. I was desperate and I was seeking refuge. At the time, it felt like my last chance to learn how to end this terrible suffering that I could no longer endure and I would do what it took. 
on some level, I knew that who I was going into the monastery would not be the same person who came out. I knew that this would take all of my courage and will. I had rarely done anything as daring as this. I had doubts that I even had the strength to make it the full month. And so I arrived at Zen Mountain Monastery on April 3rd, 2019 and entered a world unlike anything that I had ever experienced. The first night I arrived exactly at 7 p.m. for orientation and discovered the entire Zendo already full of people sitting. I frantically fled the Zendo, berating myself at this my perpetual habit of lateness until a very kind monastic named Yukon came and found me. He told me that I was right on time and led me into the Buddha hall where Shoan was giving beginning instruction. I took my seat, apologizing profusely, and Shoan responded again that I was right on time. My guard was up. Who were these people to be so kind to me when I was so late? I was so used to being admonished for being a late person that such a small act of kindness made a very big impact on me. I will always remember that first evening as instrumental to the process of breaking down all the walls that I had up. At some point during beginning instruction, Shoan told us that no matter what had brought each of us here, we were all perfect. There was nothing about us that needed to change. That was the first time that anybody in my entire life had said that to me. At the end of orientation, we were all led into the Zendo for the end of Zazen. Dimly lit, incense floating through the air and liturgical chant echoing. As I took it all in, I felt something stir within me, my doubts suddenly erased. The words of the evening Gatha in particular struck me. I, rem I couldn't stop smiling. I remember thinking, yes, this is going to be really tough. This is still probably the hardest thing that I've ever done but I know that I'm in the right place. My first evening at the monastery, I woke up at least three times in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. What was I thinking? What was I trying to prove? What was I even doing here in this strange place? And for those few moments, I understood what a hell realm was. I was right. My month at the monastery was the hardest thing that I have ever done. I spent a lot of my time there tired and hungry, but in between those long bouts of exhaustion and hunger, I began to discover a sense of happiness within me that I didn't know existed. I began to discover, uh, um, I remember a moment where I was polishing the wood of a bunk bed in the cloister and looking out of the window and seeing a light snow begin to fall. In that moment, I was reminded of the Grinch whose heart suddenly grew three sizes too big and he didn't know how to handle it. That was how I felt as I was simply polishing wood, unexpectedly, frighteningly, deeply happy. I began to talk to others who lived there and the others who were doing their month alongside me. I learned that even though their circumstances were different, pretty much everyone was there for the same reason that I was. Everyone had been stuck in their own hell realm. And this was how they had chosen to pull themselves out. I discovered that far from being alone on this journey, I was instead surrounded by those who had gone through their own traumas and were fighting to become the best possible versions of themselves. I was enchanted. 
I had known that my time at the monastery would be difficult, but I had no idea that I would make such deep connections with my fellow residents and the monastics. I came home from the monastery to an apartment that I had just moved into before going upstate. My room was packed to the brim full of boxes that had yet to be unpacked. I got to work and one of the first things I set up was my altar. The first few months after coming home from the monastery were really tough. I'd gone through a trauma right before going upstate and whether I wanted to or not, I had a breakup to sort through. As I began to rebuild my life, I knew that how I had been living before was not healthy. And I strove to create a new life that better reflected my values and my character. What I learned at the monastery about myself, my inner strength, my competence, even my very small glimpses at my true nature, formed the foundation for my practice out in the world. In many ways, I found it difficult to practice away from the monastery. In large part because I did not have a sangha around me to hold me accountable, I began to sit less and less. After having such an intense month of practice in April and then having significantly less pressure once I got home, it was eye-opening to see how it felt when I sat versus when I did not. I felt the pull of my old habits, and when I indulged myself, those habits weren't as fulfilling as before. I began to see that there was no going back to how I used to move through the world prior to my time at the monastery. In December of 2019, I achieved my years long dream of moving to New York City and came to Fire Lotus Temple to begin my residency as the caretaker and office manager. Coming to the temple, I of course had ideas of what was waiting for me. It would be hard work, more cooking than I had ever done in my life and there would be the opportunity to deepen my practice. But what I did not expect was the Sangha that was waiting for me. From the moment I stepped through the temple doors, I was met with more generosity and more compassion than I knew what to do with. Whether I was interacting with a regular volunteer, a practitioner from out of state, or even someone here for beginning instruction on a Sunday, I began to understand what it means to be held by a Sangha. The community at the temple became very dear to me very quickly, and I began to form genuine friendships with the people who walk through the doors. In late December, there was talk of a destructive new virus in China. Back then, we had no idea what we were in for. We made jokes, we brushed it off. Then, just after a few short months after I had taken over as caretaker, just as I was getting into the swing of what the job entailed, Fire, Fire Lotus Temple closed. I was suddenly cut off from the Sangha that I had been, that I'd become so close to. The first Sunday that we were closed, I remember tearing up, uncertain of what the future held and dismayed at the loss that each Sangha member must be feeling. Surely this would only last for a few weeks and then we can all get back to normal, right? Then came the trucks full of bodies parked in the streets. The New York City streets were empty. The fear in the air was palpable, and with no monastics being sent down to the temple for the foreseeable future, it was up to myself and the other residents to continue our practice. We began to practice not just for ourselves, but also for the Sangha who couldn't step through our doors. It was during this time that I came to realize how much I wanted to become a student. 
I had felt this urge since I first knew it was an option, but for many months I had not trusted myself and questioned myself every time the idea came into my head. However, this pandemic has put many things in perspective. When I finally realized that I couldn't envision my life without this sangha and without this practice, and more than that, I didn't want to, the answer was clear. On September 10th, I passed through Guardian Council and I'm on my way to becoming a student. We are now six months into the pandemic with no end in sight. And I honestly can't think of a better place to be in the middle of all this. It has been an honor to be given the opportunity to step up and take care of Fire Lotus Temple. When I do Kinhin in the Zendo by myself, I feel all of you walking alongside me. I light incense at the door to the Zendo for each of you every day. And I look forward to the day when I can greet each of you in person again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.